Um, and then I also want to give you an update. I actually talked to Dick yesterday. Um, uh, you know, he called and he he says he's doing really well. Um, he's coming home. He plans on coming home tomorrow, um, so he should be home. And uh, and I asked him about I, you know there's been a, a huge outpouring of of sympathy and emotion and love for both he and Liz. And you know people ask him what can we do. Um, some people have mentioned meals. And if you know anything about how Dick eats. Um, meals not a good idea he's got so many dietary restrictions um, and so I asked Dick well what could we do and he said you know the thing that ends up meaning the most to he and Liz are just cards and letters about how you see God working in your lives and um, so if you want to do that I would just mail to Dick and Liz's house just mail them a card or a letter um, letting them know how much you care about them and you know how excited you are that God seems to be answering our prayers and, and restoring him so um, he's supposed to I guess they took out a major portion of his colon, sewed it back together, and they found in the process some lymph nodes that were a little bit concerning, so they took some of those out, and they're going to do a biopsy on those. And he said it's possible that um, because of the lymph nodes, he may end up having to endure some chemotherapy, but he's not sure yet. So um, so that's that's the update. We are looking at one of the probably the most famous stories in all the Bible today. Um, it is sprawled in your bulletin on pages 7 and 8. This is a long story. It's interesting. So, um, But it's God's Word, and I don't want to shortchange it. I did cut out a few verses that I think are repetitious, but I feel like it's wise for us to read the story in its entirety. And so give ear now. Uh, this is God's Word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was nine and a half feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 125 pounds of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's iron head weighed 15 pounds. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And David came to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. 
And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And and Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head, And clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come, with me, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. This is God's word. So this is, again, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Almost reading it makes me feel like I don't even need to preach. Right? I'm excited. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> let's figure out who Goliath is today and let's go attack. Um, in the context of 1 Samuel, right? This is one chapter in 31, okay? And it's one chapter in even a larger collection, First and Second Samuel. And in this book, what this chapter does, it's telling the story of David, right? It's teaching us about David who's living in the gap, right? He's living in the gap between the way life should be and the way it really is, right? David is living in the, in the gap between the promise of God that he would be king and his experience, right? That he's not yet been made the king. And in this gap, David is striving. He's trying to be a blessing to the nation of Israel. Okay, now we have the same calling. Right? Our calling is the same as David. God wants each one of us, each one of you, no matter who you are, to stand in the gap and to be a blessing to the city. Okay, especially in the area where the city's in conflict. Okay, and so when you think about a city in conflict, what do you normally think of? What, what comes to your mind first? When you think about what's broken or where the conflicts lie in the city, where do you see that things are most wrong? You know, what do you think about? Financial. Yeah, financial. Right? It's a huge concern, right, with, with money leaving because the state's are acting the way it is. I mean, maybe in your community. What do you think is broken in your community? Or even if, say again? I'm sorry, one more time. Oh, just the soul of the city, the soul of the community? Okay, okay. Yeah, mental illness. I mean, homeless. I mean, it's interesting. We got this whole list of things that we want to tackle this year, you know, that we're hoping each one of you will take some part in, right? These are things where we feel like the city's in conflict and we want to be used by God. We have the same calling to be a blessing to our city. And these are areas that we want to, we want to come after. And so then, I mean, so you think about the city, your community, even your family. You know, you think about the relationships that you have. What's broken there? You know, and, and when you see things that are wrong, how do you fix them? You know, what do you do? What do you think about being able to do to bring, to bring healing, to bring a solution? I mean, can we really make a difference? We're all living in this gap between the promise and the reality. And this story teaches us how we can stand up in the midst of cities in conflict, when there is evil that we identify in the city, in our own lives, in the lives of our family and our communities, 
we see this story teaches us how do we stand? How do we act? How do we respond to conflict? And so we're going to see this today in three points. We're going to see first that Goliath brings fear. Okay. Second, we're going to see that David brings faith. And then third, we're going to talk about how this applies to us. Okay, so first, Goliath brings fear. Okay, this story uh, brings up a custom that was common during, you know, in ancient Near Eastern battles. This, uh, this idea of battle by representative, right? It's interesting because you have both armies are lined up on both sides. They're, they're on two mountains and there's a valley in between. They're getting ready to do battle. Well, then the Philistines send forth their giant and he challenges Israel. And for him to do that was a common practice back then. It's well attested in the ancient Near East that this was how things would happen. Each side would send out their best warrior. Those two would duel, and whoever won would actually, their victory would be the victory of their entire army, and so the other army would become their slaves. Okay, this is just kind of how it worked. And the belief was that that duel of champions expressed the will of the deity or the deities. You know, it's like in a battle of the gods, we'll put our strongest together and each god will help. And so really it's a fight between the gods. It saves bloodshed that way. It saves time, you know, so there's convenience factors there as well. You know, and so it's interesting. You have this sense that things are kind of equal, right? You've got army on one side, army on the other. The narrator pretty well balances everything out until you get to verse 4, right? When Goliath shows up, the narrator tips the scales, Verses 4 through 10 describe that this is not going to be a fair fight. He's 9 foot 10. Good grief. I mean, Yao Ming is like 7 foot 5. You know, this guy's 9 foot 6. You know, and you're dealing with a culture where most people were about 5 and a half feet tall, actually, shorter than we are today. And so he was towering, towering. And he wasn't just, you know, when I was at UCLA, there was one guy who was 7 foot 7, okay, and he was on the basketball team, but he never played because he wasn't any good, okay? Because he was tall, but he was uncoordinated, okay? I mean, and so that's not the case with, uh, with Goliath. He's got 126 pounds of armor on, okay? Back then, just the coat of mail that you'd wear on your chest weighed, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's just the coat that he wore that was 126 pounds, 125 pounds. Okay, well, back then, all of your armor would typically weigh between 40 and 60 pounds. Okay, all of it. But Goliath's coat of mail that he's wearing on the front is, by itself, is 126 pounds. Okay? And then he has this spear that is so strong and so heavy, it's as though there's a, hev- there's a bowling ball on the end of it. Okay? I mean, try to imagine this, right? His spear, the head of the spear had a 15-pound iron head on the spear. Okay, so literally, you're trying to hold a bowling ball, like, you know, I can't even barely swing it like this and, and get it to go. I mean, on the end of a spear, try to, you get the picture. You get the picture. And he's not just a freak of nature. He's this seasoned warrior, and he knows it, right? Saul declares that he has been seasoned from his youth. He's been in battle from his youth. Um, and so, you know, and, and, he, and he knows it, right? He knows it about himself, and so he's taunting. Right? He's taunting the armies of Israel. He's laughing at them, right? Because he knows. You, know, you wonder how many times, you know, if, if you've ever watched, the, there's a VeggieTales cartoon about this. And, um, you know, the, the Israelites are played by several different kinds of vegetables, like some cucumbers and some gourds that are pretty sizable. You know, and the Philistines on the other side are these peas. 
okay, and these little tiny peas, and they're kind of you know, yelling back and forth. And the peas say, all right, let's send our strongest man. You send your strongest man. And these gourds over here are looking at the peas going, we can take them. Yeah, and so they say, yeah, all right, we'll do it. And so then they, you know, the peas are over here going, oh, Goliath, and this giant cucumber comes out, right? I mean, and so you have this thing where all of a sudden, I mean, all of this speaks to Goliath, the seasoning, the, I mean, his, his, his armor, his spear, his height, all of this. The result instills fear. Okay, in one word, this whole scene is designed to make Israel and to make the reader, you as a reader, afraid. Okay, you are supposed to think, oh my goodness, this is awful, what's going to happen? Okay, it's all about fear. Now, what is fear? Well, fear is an emotion, right? Fear is something, you know, it's, it's typically bound in uncertainty, right? A lot of times, fear comes, you know, and it brings along with it hopelessness, despair, sometimes terror. You think about fear, you know, and sometimes it's uncertainty about the future, but other times it's certainty of a bad future, right? Or the possibility of a bad future. You know, these are things that cause us to be afraid. I did some research. Um, there are over 550 phobias. You know, if you, if you do the big list, you can find over 550 things that have been classified extreme to the point where it's, it's called a phobia, which means it actually controls the life of the person. You know, it, it augments the way that, um, that they live their lives. And, and so we've got to ask, you know, as Israel is staring into the you know, barrel of a cannon, right, as they look, aside, they look across at Goliath, they're quaking in their boots. I mean, for you, what are you afraid of? You know, what are the things that drive fear in you? What are the things that cause you to get nervous? What are the things that keep you from going to sleep at night or wake you up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep? Pain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there can be a fear of, like, is this ever going to get better? Or are you in a situation that's just dark or depressing or frustrating? I mean, a fear that you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, sometimes fears can just be completely debilitating where we're undone and can't do anything. The Proverbs talks about the person who's enslaved by fear says, I'm not going outside because there are lions out there, right? Which is an extreme phobia, you know, at the point where it's irrational fear. But sometimes other fears can just make us inactive, right? You know, I think when we think about like our own goals this year, in terms of the things that we want to do in the city, sometimes I think, you know, we want to make progress in these areas, but like, can we really, is there really hope? I mean, it's such a daunting thing to say that we want to help impact the homeless situation. It's such a daunting thing to feel like we could actually improve people's sense of community, that give people a real sense of belonging. You know, and sometimes we think about it and we're just overwhelmed and we think, why even try? You know, and so I think when we think about fear, it's important for us to understand what it is and then to understand that fear actually spreads. Okay, it's one of the insidious things about fear. It's not only bad, but it spreads. It spreads like wildfire. We see that in the text. In verse 24, you see, after Goliath is talking with them, it says, it says um, all the men of Israel, when they, heard, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. 
So all the people of Israel are running in fear, right? It only takes one person to buy in that, oh my goodness, Goliath means the end. And then that spreads. And soon the entire army is running away from this one person. You know, and then you look to the king and you look back in verse 11. Verse 11, when Saul and all these, all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so even Saul, the fear spread to Saul. Saul didn't know what to do. He's the likely candidate to fight, right? He's head and shoulders above the rest. Some scholars say he was six foot six. So he's still giving away three feet. But, you know, Saul was chosen. This is the point of the king. He's got to lead Israel into battle. And Saul's running away just like the rest. If it's not confronted, fear will take hold. And soon everyone is under its curse. And then we see a guy like Eliab, you know, the firstborn son, David's oldest brother. In verse 28, David shows up trying to find out what's going on is getting a set, is assessing the situation, and his oldest brother turns on him. You know, Eliab sees him and is like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You know, little man with the sheep, go back to the sheep, right? I mean, some of this we can see if you've got siblings or if you have children, you've, you've seen this happen. But I mean, Eliab was cruel, rude, judgmental. In fact, Eliab's words actually make him sound like Goliath. And I think what's happening is that Eliab is really projecting his own fear. And when it comes down to it, Eliab ha- is, is threatened by David. Right? Not only has Eliab been turned down in the last chapter in favor of David, right, in terms of who the Lord is going to anoint, but here the one who was anointed shows up and Eliab is not only resentful of his little brother, but he's also afraid. And he doesn't know how to deal with that. He's got shame. He senses his own anxiety and impotence in terms of what he could do for Goliath. And when David shows up, he takes it all out on him. He ridicules him. Again, he judges his heart as evil. And I think, you know, that's not that far from our own experience. Right? When you feel like things are out of control, don't you kind of panic? When you feel like things are out of control... And someone else shows up that really doesn't rub you the right way. Don't you take it out on them? I mean, it's good to point out Eliab and show what a a jerk he is. But, I mean, when we do that, I think we also need to recognize it in our own hearts. This is also part of who we are. And what we see here is not only does fear spread like wildfire, but it, it actually enslaves us. Okay, fear enslaves us. And the reason is because it promotes a worldview. Okay, fear is teaching you to actually believe something. Okay, in this passage, the fear is an expression of belief that might makes right. Okay, all of the fear and all of the people are driven by an ideology. They're, they're driven by a view of the world that says the strongest and the strongest only will triumph. The only hope that we have is if we could find someone who's 10 foot six, right? Who's got 150 pounds of armor on and has a, you know. um, And what's interesting is that all of Israel has bought into that. All of Israel has bought into the lie. uh, Goliath, at one point, he makes fun of Israel. Israel. He actually says, you you guys are slaves of Saul, um, but I'm free. Um, Let's see if I can find that verse. 
Um, oh, there's so many of them. There's a point where Goliath just says, look, you guys are slaves of Saul, but I'm free. And, uh, and it's interesting because he says that, but the reality is that Goliath is just offering another, another version of slavery. Goliath comes out, trapes out with all of his armaments, with all of his braggadociousness, and he is taunting Israel, taunting their gods. But what he's saying is, I want you to bow down to fearing me. And it's because Goliath believes that might makes right. And he's convincing, again, he's convincing the Israelites. And that's what happens when we let into our fear, when we give into our fear. Goliath believed this lie. Saul, the king of Israel, believed the lie. All the people of Israel believed the lie. What happens is, you know, is that we, we hear it, we begin to give into it, and it will take over. And the fear will control us. So when you think about your own fears, you will find that that fear begins to grow. Maybe you're only afraid in a particular area or in a particular instance, but if you give into that fear, it will grow and it will begin to affect other areas of your life. I mean, Saul, even when David comes and he begins to sense that David might be the hope for the nation, he still believes this lie and he tries to put his armor on David, right? He tries to give his sword to David. He tries to get David to become himself, to send him out to fight Goliath. And so again, we see that Saul believes this lie. And so fear actually makes us forget what's true. Okay? It makes us forget. You know, we get consumed with how evil this you know, Goliath is or how evil this thing in the city is. We think it's so big, it can't be touched, it can't be affected, we can't make a difference. And we become consumed the only thing we end up thinking about is the evil, like is the thing that we're in conflict with, is the fear. And it consumes us, it controls us, and we get to the point where we're depressed because all we can see when we think about it is the problem. Right? That's just that's how, that's how it works. And ultimately, our fear makes us forget God. It makes us forget God. And when we do that, we really are just mincemeat. We're sitting there waiting for 40 days you know, listening to somebody come at us, listening to somebody tell us that we're not any good, tell us that we're going to get destroyed. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, this is fear. Now, so what do we do? I mean, what's the answer to this? What, you know, what do you do if you've got an area of your life where you're afraid? What do you do if there's something in your life that you just don't know how things are going to get any better? when you think about trying to be an influencer, a blessing in the city, when you think about our church and what it could be here in the city, you know, what do we do when we are plagued by fear? The answer to fear is faith. Okay, the answer to fear is faith. This brings us to point two. Into this world of fear, the narrator injects David. And David, this point two, David brings faith. David brings faith. And this faith, it changes everything, okay? It changes everything. It changes what you see, right? When David comes onto the scene, he sees things differently. He doesn't see what everybody else sees. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So when David comes, he doesn't see the height, he doesn't see the weight, he doesn't see the, the weapons. 
David sees somebody who is defying God. That's all he sees. Verse 36 and 37. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's all he is. All he is is someone who is defying the living God and who needs to be dealt with. That's all that David sees. His confidence isn't in himself, but it's it's in the God that he trusts. David said in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And what David's doing is he's learned the lesson of chapter 16, right? Remember chapter 16, verse 7, when Samuel was about to anoint Eliab, the firstborn son of Jesse, God stopped him and God said, hold on, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David is not looking on the outward appearance of Goliath. All he sees is that in front of him stands someone who is defying the living God. David also sees his past playing out in the present, right? In terms of changing what you see, faith not only changes the present, but it, you know the, the present can be changed because of the past, right? God did deliver me from the hand of a lion, from the hand of a bear, and will deliver me today. You know, and it's here where we all need to learn that memory and logic can help our faith. Okay, memory and logic can be handmaids to our faith. Think about what God has done for you in the past. Think about the things that God has seen you through, the things that you were afraid of, the things that may have debilitated you. You're still here. Right? God has brought you through so much. You need to remember that. And if you can't remember, then get a diary. I mean, really. Get a diary. If you can't remember the ways that God has worked in your past, then start writing down the things that he's doing today. And in a few years, you'll have this, you'll be able to say what David says. Well, you know what? Three years ago, boy, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was in this situation and God saw me through it. So faith changes what you see. Faith changes how you think. If you look at the speeches of David in this chapter, they're all God-centered. David's thinking now, it starts with God. Right, David's gone through that Copernican revolution. Right, so many of us we are at the center of our universe. You know, we think that the sun revolves around us. Well, David has recognized that the one that matters the most is God, and everything starts with Him. And so David has a worldview that starts with who is God, how does God feel about this, and then who am I, and what's my role. So faith changes how you think. Faith also changes what you say. In these speeches of David, his words inspire faith and hope in others. So just like we saw fear spreading because of the words of Goliath, so now we see hope spreading. We see faith spreading because of David's words. He brings this whole new worldview. To this point, the narrative, this story has been godless. Like there's no mention of God other than that he's being cursed until David opens his mouth. You know, but now David says, doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't God care here? Like, hello, do, do you think God doesn't care? 
And sometimes we need to ask ourselves that, right? Do you think God doesn't care about where you, where you are right now? Like, do you think God doesn't care about the thing that you're afraid of? Do you think God doesn't have a concern? Do you think God's not working? Do you think that God doesn't have wisdom for you? Do you think God isn't going to bring help to you? Do you think God won't meet you? That's basically what David's saying. Do you think God's going to stand by while we try to bring his kingdom in our church and in the city and not do anything? Don't think that way. (laughs) It's It's not true to what we know about God. God does care about these things. One author said this, The tragedy is that if someone were to hear our thoughts and words about our dangers and troubles, they would never guess that we have a living God. That's good. It's good for us. In verse 31, we see David's words inspire the soldiers and they end up bringing David before Saul. And then in verses 34 to 37, David inspires Saul, his confidence. It's not necessarily what he says, but it's even how he says it. You know, David knows for a fact, he knows that God would give him victory. You know, that's how faith works. So faith changes how you think, it changes what you say. Faith also changes how you see yourself. Okay, now this is big, okay? David rejected the armor of Saul, rejected the sword of Saul, right? He knew those, that wasn't the pathway that God had laid for him. And what does David do? He goes to Goliath with a sling and a stone. Those are tools of a shepherd, okay? And, and I want to be careful, um, but I guess I just want to point out that when David went into battle, he went into battle not as a warrior but as a shepherd, Okay, David didn't change who he was to confront his fear or to confront the thing that was terrorizing Israel. And I think that there's something there for us. I think there's something there for every one of you. God has given each one of you gifts, strengths, talents, abilities. He's given, and I think sometimes we feel like in order to make a difference, we need to become like someone else. You know, and again, I don't want to make too much of this, but I just think that when you think about facing your fears or when you think about helping our church try to be a blessing to the city this year, when you think about what area, we're not asking you to become something that you're not. We're saying, you know what, I think God has wired you to be able to be part of the way that he wants to bring blessing to the city. We think that God has chosen you with your gifts and your personality and your thoughts and what you think is important and what you think needs to get changed. And we want you and your influence as you are to be at work this year. Does that make sense? You don't change who you are, but use what God has given you. David, again, goes in saying, look, it's, in a sense, it doesn't matter who I am. right? What matters is who I'm with. And the same thing can be said for all of us. So don't see yourself as just one person or just a Christian or just a mom or just one person in the office. You know, again, realize that when you go in, if you're a Christian today and you trust in Jesus, that what you're doing wherever you go, you are the conduit that's bringing Jesus into where you're going. Does that make sense? It's, it's the Spirit anointing you to be the embodiment of Jesus. And the way it looks through you is important to God. 
okay, your relationship with God, you're bringing in the truth, the ideas, the character, the heart of God as you express it is what God wants to show forth through your life. And so then this makes me think too that faith also, it shows your heart. David, the thing that drives David more than anything else is a passion for the honor of God. Like if you peel David open, you know, and you look inside his heart, what you see, his heart is beating to see God honored. His heart is offended because God is being defied. He wants nothing more than to see God honored. And that is what drives him. That's what gets him going. That is what is, is moving him to do all these things. For him, he's saying, look, it's God's reputation that's at stake. And it, that matters to me so much that I'm willing to risk my life for it. I'm going to put my own life on the line to fight for God's reputation. How about us? I mean, how are we doing in this? Is that the deep beat of your heart? You know, the way this text unfolds the heart of David, I mean, it's, it's showing us what happens when someone is in relationship with God. It's showing us what is possible, that your heart can beat this way. You can choose to love God more than anything else. You can put God before other things in your life. Now, it's interesting because with all this buildup, you got, I mean, you got 47 verses of buildup and then the fight's over in two verses. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Right, all of this buildup, right? It's, it's like, I'm sure there's TV shows like that where they show you 45 minutes of the show and then the climax or maybe news, you know, you, you watch it for that one thing and it's at the very end and, and then it's over, and you think, wait a second, I, I stayed up all night for that? I stayed up all, all hour for that? I, I guess the point is, you know, that really what matters isn't the actual encounter. I mean, that does matter. It matters enormously, and we'll talk about the implications of that. It matters in huge ways, but really the issue that is most on the narrator's mind, the storyteller's mind, the, the, the point that he wants to get across to us more than anything else is that it's faith in God that matters. It's faith that drives away fear. And God will support those who have faith. I mean, it's interesting because, really, this is David, again, standing in the gap. Right? He is acting as the king before he's enthroned. Saul should have been the one to go out to battle, but he wasn't. Instead, David goes. And so we see, in a sense... Again, we talked about how in God's providence, God put David in the gap to help him mature. And this is a huge step in that maturity. David is preparing to take the throne. He is preparing. This, this is sort of the narrative arc. Last chapter, we see him. He's, um, he's anointed by the Spirit. He's chosen by God and anointed by the Spirit. You know, and then he's in the court of, of Saul, and he's blessing Saul and being a blessing to him. Here we see that he is actually saving Israel. He's delivering Israel. He is acting as the king. And so we see this. I mean, this is, this is drama. This is the narrator telling us the story of David's rise to power. And that's exciting. And what we see here, sort of the aftermath, is that David's victory, and this is sort of, sort of going back to the beginning, 
um, David's victory is imputed to the people of Israel. Right? David wins, and so Israel wins. Right? And so what we see here is that in the fallout, David prevails, cuts his head off, takes his sword, and then verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded later on this huge path, they chased him down, and then they came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And so again, yeah, what we see here is that the victory of David is imputed to the people of Israel. And that's what happens when faith comes in. David brings faith and faith brings God's power and God's power leads to victory. So that's the second point. Now third, let's wrap up by talking about how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Not only is this uh, a famous story that most people have heard of, but this is also a story where, that preachers argue about a lot. Okay? So I'll let you in a little bit of a... In, in the preaching world, uh, we talk about, well, what's the most appropriate way to preach texts of Scripture? Okay? And this story of David and Goliath, there's arguments that go on with preachers. And, and the question is, is this text... In this text, is David an example of you? Or... Is David an example of Jesus? Okay, some people say, well, this is David who is a man of faith, who is in the gap, who is struggling, and yet overcomes by his faith, by the power of the Spirit that's in him, right? And they would say, okay, well, so Christians also have the power of the Spirit in them. We also are called to live in the gap. And so David really is a model for us on how to live, right? And so, so some people would say, that this text, really David points to, to you, and we'll talk about the implications of that. And then others say, well, hold on a second. No, 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 David isn't just any Israelite. He's not just any person with the Holy Spirit. David was actually anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the king of Israel, right? And the king was supposed to represent the nation of Israel. And so really when you look at it that way, David wasn't just a human being and, you know, imbued with the Spirit, but he was called by God to represent and lead the people, in which case David must actually point to Jesus, who does the same thing for the people of God in the church. So which is it? Amen. It's both. It's both. It's both. The Jesus people say that the, da- that, the, that the David pointing to us is moralism, and there's no gospel in it. There's no good news. Okay? Then the David is an Israelite pointing to us people accuse the Jesus people of, well, you're not actually applying this to us. Like, this doesn't mean anything for us. We're just left to sit back and watch. And so I think the answer is both. There are wonderful implications for both. But the reason, here's the biggest reason why I think it's both. It's because, look, there are things that God is going to bring to your mind. There are things that you're aware of. There are conflicts. There is evil. There are problems in the city, in your life, in the lives of your community, your family. There are things that are around you that you can handle. And there are things around you that you can't handle. Okay, there are evils in the city that you can make a difference in. Okay, I think that the problems, the the, the the issues that these ministries represent 
uncover problems in our city, uncover problems in our church. So it's not just, you know, the city's a problem. I mean, we're part of the problem too, you know, which is why we want to grow in our discipleship, why we want to grow in terms of community and, and a sense of belonging. These are things that you can get involved in and actually make a difference. Okay? And so as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit just like David, who has a call from God to live in the gap just like David, God is calling you as Christians to live in the power of the Spirit and to live like David, to have his faith, okay? To, to express his God-centered worldview, to live and wonder, what does God have to say about this? Does God care about this? And then what would God want me to do about it, okay? I mean, the area of homelessness, you know, it could be as simple as walking through the East Village on Sunday mornings. You're just walking around in the East Village and learning about it. And, and, ta- and beginning to, to just say hello to people that are there. In terms of the LGBT community, it's just showing up at AIDS Walk, showing up at Dining Out for Life, volunteering maybe at the center, trying to do something that you can do to help. Right? There are things that you can do that will make a difference, where you can bring the power of God, the Holy Spirit that's anointed you, into those situations and just live in love. Just live in love. By living and loving, you can actually make a difference might be a small incremental difference, but the more people we have in the city who are doing these things, the more we see that we can push back the evil, the darkness, the problems, the more we can actually see healing. And you know that God will handle, like God will bless your efforts, okay? It may not look exactly the way you envision it'll look, but God will use you to make a difference, okay? But there's also stuff in the city that you can't handle. Okay, there are things that are so deeply rooted, that are so entrenched, that you can't fix them. I mean, you think about the budget crisis in our state, right? You think about the health care situation in our country, right? These are big, huge issues, right? These are big, giant things, and the problem is that both sides of the aisle have some of the solution and some of the air that they're contributing to it. You know, when you think about what a real solution would look like, I mean, how do you even start, right? When there's stuff that you can't handle, that's when you realize that David does point to Jesus. Okay, and the stuff where you feel like God is calling you to make a difference, David's pointing to you, and God is encouraging you to stand firm in faith, you know, with faith in him. But in the stuff that you can't handle, that's when you need to stop and you realize the battle between David and Goliath, the battle between champions, is actually a battle that has been fought over and over and over again in the Bible. Okay, it starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the serpent, he says, between you and the woman, I'm going to put a conflict. I'm going to create a conflict between the two of you, between your seed and between her seed. You will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. And what we see is that that battle gets replayed over and over and over again. We see it in terms of Moses versus Pharaoh, right? We see it here with David and Goliath. We see it with Daniel and the, the other people in, uh, in, in, in the king's court. We see it, I mean, it's throughout the Bible. We see instances of, we see it Elijah against the prophets of Baal. Over and over again, God continues to put forth people who represent large groups and they fight together just like this. Because God wants us to know that the ultimate battle, the ultimate 
one-to-one -one encounter. The ultimate clash of the champions happens between Jesus and, the, and Satan. That all of this, ultimately, David and Goliath points to Jesus. Ultimately, it points to that final conflict where Jesus takes on not just Goliath, but Jesus takes on the evil that produces Goliath. You know, David, it's interesting, David goes in, he goes into this fight trusting that God would give him victory. But Jesus went into his fight trusting that God would be victorious, but knowing that in order for God to be victorious, Jesus would have to fail. Jesus knew going into his battle that he was going to have to give up his own life. He was going to have to die. He was going to have to die so that his ultimate enemy, so that the ultimate enemy of sin, of death, the ultimate enemy of all the stuff that causes the problems, that causes the conflicts, that causes even the darkness in our own city and the things that are in your life that you don't like, the things that cause the gap between the way life should be and the way life is, Jesus took all of that on on the cross. And the only way that he could overcome it was by submitting to it and suffering the punishment for it. In this passage, and even in our service, we've seen that God uses the unlikely and the weak things of the world to show that it's about his power and not ours. You know, David was told by his older brother, you're a pain, <laughs> right? He was told by Saul, you're green. He was told by Goliath, you're puny. And yet he overcame by the power of God. With Jesus... Jesus also came. The Bible says he had nothing about him that would make you attracted to him. There was nothing worldly that would, drop, that would draw you to him and make you want to follow him. And that God used him in his weakness to change the world, to fundamentally deal with the evil in the world so that he could turn things around and bring blessing and healing. Jesus, in his weakness, overcame death and then in his resurrection, triumphs over it all. And so when I think about that, I think what this does. With stuff that we can't handle, we need to remember that we trust in a God. And we need to remind ourselves of this. We trust in a God who came in the flesh and gave his life up so that that could be fixed. And maybe it hasn't been fixed yet, and it's not going to be fixed yet but he will fix it. And so we let Jesus fight the Goliaths, right? If they're too big, too strong, if even by the power of God, we don't feel like God is calling us to fix that, we leave that for Jesus and let his victory over the enemy show us how he's going to do it apart from us. But then, if Jesus, if David does point to Jesus, then we are the Israelites of verses 51, or, or 52 and 53. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines, killed them, slaughtered them all, and then came back and plundered their camp. If David points to Jesus, then you're one of the armies of Israel and Judah. And because of David's victory, because of the victory of Jesus, because Jesus on the cross in his death and resurrection has triumphed over everything that's wrong with the world and will bring it 
to its full restoration, will fix and heal it. Because he's done that, you can then stand in the gap. You can actually make a difference. You've got to catch that. You know, and your sling and your stone is probably love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. That's what God has anointed you with. You know, we don't need to take up a, a rock and hurl it at somebody. You know, Philippians 4 says, let your gentleness be made known to all because the Lord is at hand. The Lord will show up in your gentleness as you love and show mercy in the conflict. As you show love and mercy, you will, in the foolishness of God's economy, you will show that God's power is stronger than anything that can be thrown at you. This is the hope. I mean, this is what David I, I mean, means to me. He calls me to, to walk forth, calls, calls me to walk forth in the power of the Spirit with faith in God, but then to wisely know when I need to say, hold on, Jesus, you need to go before me here. Like, this one's too big. You need to take, on, you need to take this on for me. And in the meantime, I am going to bask, I'm going to walk in your victory. And through my words and my faith, I'm going to share with, my, with your love and your grace I want to make a difference so I can point people to your ultimate victory and show them where it comes from. Let's pray. Father, I read this and I'm so, I'm so inspired. I want so much to live David's life of confidence and assurance in you. I want so much to see your kingdom, your victory in my life, in my family's life, in my community, in the city. I want to see these things come true, God. I want to see your love and your grace infiltrate everything. And yet there's stuff that is just so, so difficult. God, give us wisdom to know when we need to stand up and by the power of your spirit move forward versus when we need to trust in the work of Jesus and in his resurrection, trust that he is going to go forward before us and that we need to wait for him to move. God, show us how we can make a difference. Show us how our faith can put your victory on display so that more people would want to know it, more people would come to know it. And if there are folks here who haven't yet made their commitment to you, Jesus, would you show them how to trust in you? Would you help them to confess their sins, to say they're sorry, and to reach out and grab hold of you and your death and resurrection so that they too might experience the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.